Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm your host, Glenn Holmstrom, Professor of Art at Newman University. In this podcast, Martha Hollander, Professor of Art History at Hofstra University, and Tyler Rocky, Adjunct Instructor of Art History at Newman University, discuss web-based tools and approaches in the art history classroom. All right. Hello, everyone. Thanks, Glenn, for, for having us here, and thank you, Martha, for being here as well, too. Yeah. Hi. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, let's see. Where should we start here? Martha, do you want to share a little bit about what you've been doing in your courses with, with web-based tools and, and uh, approaches? Sure. There's actually uh, a lot. Some of it is in the classroom and some of it is out of the classroom. But what I could start out by saying is that the idea behind using some of these tools is to get away from the, the traditional way that art history has been taught for so long, which is that you know, the instructor is at the front of the room controlling a projected image. And right. Students look at the image like they're at the movies, you know, that art in the dark, as they say, <laughs> or darkness at noon or, you know, whatever. I think, we, you know, we all went through that. And uh, yeah. and and when did and when the digital revolution happened, what that did was to create uh, a way to make it easier to show projected images and to show more of them. And all that is very good. But some years ago, I began uh, to think about how to turn over the production of the images from myself to the students, by, by which I mean that um, I would allow the students themselves, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, uh, to be able to generate the images themselves on their laptops and their phones. Since they were always using their laptops, uh, and since the whole uh, that whole thorny problem of whether or not to allow laptops and or phones in a classroom uh, is an issue anyway. My goal was instead of creating an adversarial relationship between me and my students about where their attention should be directed, I just thought I would use the tools they already had with them. Uh, anyway, this is sort of a long introduction to this, but that's kind that's of fine. why I began to do it. And I also began to do it because I was tired of lecturing and because I didn't want their art history experience to be about me, I wanted it to be about the art and about how they could explore it on their own with guidance from me. And so, uh, so I began having them generate image searches on their laptops and tablets and phones. So that's one thing that I do. That doesn't mean that I don't show, uh, uh, I don't project images in the classroom. Often I do. Uh, simultaneously to that, or I'll show an image and then I'll have them look for images like it or something like that, or I'll give them a, a sort of targeted search for things. Uh, sometimes I put them into groups and have them uh, get together with whoever's got a laptop or a phone and mm -hmm. basically educate them in how they can use these tools, you know, that they use for social media and communication and shopping and everything else to actually do art history and to show them that they have this enormous subset of the entire history of art in their hands, uh, and they can use that. So that's a kind of general thing that I've been doing, uh, and that's kind of where it comes from. 
so that of course uh, relies on the web. Um, mm-hmm, right. So that's one thing I do. Uh, more specifically, um, I, I also use um, I use the VoiceThread tool, which I think I mentioned to you. Yeah, uh, I was just checking that out yesterday. That seems really interesting. I never never come across that before. Yeah, it, it's hard to find out about unless somebody tells you. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> talk to people who say, "Oh, yeah, I've been using it for years." I actually have been using it for years because it was introduced to me by somebody at my university who is who is actually in was in academic computing. But since then, I've introduced it to some people, and then other people also have been using it for years. But it's hard to find out about these things. So, so of course, VoiceThread is a is a kind of uh, it, it's that commentary tool. It's a discussion forum, but it's visually based. Uh, and I like it because kind of like Facebook, you know, everybody can have a little visual identity, can have their little avatar and can get in there and can comment on an image or a video or something. But instead of having it go down in a linear fashion, you know, they're all uh, su- they're all surrounding a central image. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. It, so I really like that format. Yeah. Educators are using it for K-12 stuff. It's great. Martha, is VoiceThread free? Um, I don't know how that works because my university supports it. I think it probably, there's probably free trials out there, but uh, because I think that people have just been able to sort of, you know, play around with it. Um, We've always had it uh, at Hofstra, uh, but I don't know, um, I don't know about um, a free free version it probably is there's usually free trials for a lot of these things yeah yeah my experience with a lot of these these tools is that you have um some sort of free element to it it might be rather basic but something you can you can use for free and then maybe you get into more advanced things things that are more expansive things that can handle more people or something like that that usually is where things start to uh, have a cost to them yeah, yeah. So if you if you have a small group of students, if you're lucky enough to have a small group, right. you know, you can try it. It's really interesting. So if, if you just go to their website, it can show you some of the things uh, that it can be used for. I know that some uh, there are some people who are actually using it now, um, not just uh, with students, but also to um, um, also to present their own work. I know also, yeah, and I've had students, I give students assignments sometimes, and I give them the option of doing their assignment in the VoiceThread format. Sometimes I have a component for uh, oral presentations, but my classes are usually too large to be able to have, you know, 60 students do oral presentations. So instead, I have them do the presentations with VoiceOver, because VoiceThread allows for recording video and typing so it's very versatile given that a lot of these things a lot of these web-based tools their applications vary via class size what what is your normal class size that you're working with whenever you're using some of these things Uh, well my uh my classes generally cap at around 40 was sort of an exaggeration that's uh, usually two out of three classes uh they cap at 40 they usually run somewhere between 15 and 40 uh, depending on what class it is. Um, so it, it is possible to have 40 students all commenting on a single voice thread. And, uh, uh, and, and I must say that it's a lot easier to read through those comments in the visual format that VoiceThread allows, uh, much better than, say, using the, um, 
the discussion board tool in Blackboard, for example. We, uh, my institution uses Blackboard. Yeah, uh, so we, yeah. yeah and, and although Blackboard is so powerful that it makes it a lot easier to grade these things, it's so, uh, I just don't want to read through all those things. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just not the same. And the students really like VoiceThread, and I use it as a kind of, um, for what some people like to call low-stakes writing, which is that um, I give them assignments, weekly assignments, where they have to read a bunch of things online. Usually it's, it's museum websites or it's stuff from Smart History, uh, Khan Academy, or, uh, or sometimes a short video. And then they have to comment on it and they have to summarize it and ask questions about it. And I do it in the VoiceThread format so they can write. And I encourage them to write whatever they want and they write very freely and they're very engaged, often much more engaged than they are when they're actually in the classroom, which is not surprising. It's not their fault because, you know, classrooms can be pretty, uh, pretty defeating sometimes, especially. Yeah, agreed. Quiet and poorly aerated and, you know, <laughs> nice places to be. But uh, uh, they do they do some great work there. So I, I, I think it's a really, really useful tool. I think there's something about the novelty too of a lot of these these uh, platforms and programs. They're designed really nicely and that sort of I think facilitates more engagement and, and greater sort of creativity whenever you're working with something that that um kind of has a, a nice sort of created feel to it as well. Sort of stimulates the mind a little bit more than like, like you mentioned Blackboard. Like I have students that write responses on Blackboard but I've been thinking about having them do this somewhere else in a more sort of uh, stylized and creative sort of online space like that, like, like you're describing uh, yeah. VoiceThread. Yeah, I, I think I, I think you can do really well with it. Um, the students also like it because it's very easy. Um, That's important too. <laughs> very easy, and there usually aren't a lot of glitches, and when they are, they're pretty easily fixable. I've found very few problems recently. Uh, in, uh, in in students' ability to use it, and when there's a problem, usually they can get it, you know, fixed themselves. And um, uh, but they really like it because it's simple and because it's visual. And it also allows, for example, it allows not only for a single image to be up there, but it allows students to post their own uh, what are called slides. So they can also, if based on whatever settings I put on there, they can provide their own images. So a single voice thread will be like a kind of slideshow with as few or as many images as needed, and the students can actually contribute to it. So one of the, one of the things that I do sometimes in class is to put my students into groups, and I will have them do online searches for certain types of images, like, uh, and I might do this like about a certain artist or about a certain subject or a certain type or like in my, um, I teach in uh, a sort of survey uh, Renaissance to modern class. And so one of the first th things I do is to have them come up with as many different media for say uh, objects produced say in the Renaissance uh, as they can. And so then, you know, we'll end up with lots of different types of sculptures and paintings and metalwork and tapestry and so on. And, and whenever they find one, they have to post it. And so each group ends up posting an example of one of these. And essentially what they've created is a kind of crowdsourced uh, museum exhibit, a virtual museum exhibit of, you know, 
for in this example, all the different types of materials used in the Renaissance in Europe, just as an example. That's so great. that's that's really similar to what I'm doing as well. This is oh wow. <laughs> How do you go about making sure that everything that they're finding, all of these images, that they're actually like appropriate images for, for the topic or for the theme? Um, by appropriate, do you mean that they're relevant? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that we do is we put them all up and, uh, and then I'll say, uh, part of that, I'm sorry, what I should say is that part of it is based on how I guide them through searches because part okay. of what is involved in this, part of what's involved in this is teaching them how to understand the searches they're doing, which gets into the larger topic of how to understand source material, not just uh, information sources, but also sources for images. So I'll say, okay, well, we can all use a Google image search because it's quick and easy and it's down and dirty and you can do it right away, but you might find things on there which are not at all related to what you're looking for. And so then I say, all right, well, if you find something, check it and do an, a search of just that image and find out what it is because it may not be what you think it is. You know. And so in a way, I build that into the assignment where they have to learn uh, that they can make mistakes about what they think they're finding uh, and that's okay because that's how they're gonna learn. Uh, and I do that also, of course, with uh, with sources for information, because when they write, uh, when they do writing for me, they have to do research. Mm -hmm. So w they also have to learn, of course, how to, uh, you know, what's a good source and what isn't a good source and what makes a good source good and what makes a source not good and how to tell the difference. And uh, so the same goes for, for the images as well. Uh, and then sometimes, you know, we'll put them up and I'll say, okay, you know, let's make sure that we all have the right sources here. And I do it, you know, I, I, I make, try to make that public, not because I want to humiliate students at all, but just because I try to create a sort of workshop environment where they don't have to feel so anxious. Because when I do these things in class, they're not graded. These yeah. are projects to do in class, which goes to another sort of larger issue about what I would like to accomplish in teaching art history, which is not just to sort of show, present all this information to them because there's so much of it, you know, who did what, when, where, why, how, and so on, but to try to get them used to doing art history, to engaging in the practice of art history, much in the way that art students get to make art in the classroom. And I have to say that I envy, I envy uh, professors of art because in a way what you do is, uh, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's very simple. If you want to teach them how to draw, they draw in the classroom and they have exercises, right? And they have certain types of assignments they need to do to improve their drawing, to improve their skill. And I'm trying to come up with practice-based instruction in the classroom so that they're actually learning how to do art history and not simply, you know, what is it? Um, yeah, I, I completely agree that, that a lot of what we should, what we should be trying to do is fostering these skills and not just um, like having them watch us practice art history as we lecture in front of a class, but actually getting them involved in things like having them hone these skills, helping them understand what it is that, that, 
we do as artist historians and what they can do as well as they engage with the visual world around them and think about it maybe perhaps as an artist historian might think about it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, and of course that also, that also can tie in very nicely with, with the mission or very variable missions, you know, of, of what we should be doing, I think in higher education, which is this whole question of, of, of skills and how uh, critical skills and, thinking skills and certain types of practical skills transfer and that if you know how to track down information about an object, even if it doesn't work or you have problems with it or whatever, um, that will be useful for other kinds of work and for other kinds of activities and for other areas, which is also something that students need to learn is how skills transfer. That, for example, drawing is not just about drawing or about quote-unquote art, but drawing is a form of understanding, you know, as anyone who is an engineer or an architect or any or a designer or anyone knows. So it's all good, I think. I think this gets back to having a greater sense of value in art history as well, too. I think a lot of times um, art history is seen as frivolous, but I think that if we do sort of reframe it and, and the set of skills that we're being um, educated in and that we're able to apply to other places, it sort of raises the value of an art history uh, education. Well, it, it's not just that that raises the value. You're quite right. Uh, but if you think about it, uh, art history is incredibly relevant right now. All of these uh, very, very heated debates and arguments about, for example, Confederate statues, and yeah. something that's just happened at Hofstra recently, which is this, uh, which is this statue of Thomas Jefferson, and there was great debate about whether to take it down, and so on and so forth. And this is exactly what art history is about, and uh, and also, of course, the issue of cultural appropriation of uh, of objects being destroyed by ISIS, of uh, objects being uh, confiscated by by the Nazis. I mean, all of that feeds right into this story of what art history actually is. I think art history has had a sort of unfortunate reputation, which is, you know, which is that it is, you know, useless, elitist, and so on. And it has been, of course, very elitist. There's, you know, you can't really get around that. But that in yeah, fact, yeah. these issues about objects and who makes them and why and for whom and who is affected by them and in what way long after their making, as well as at the time, is very relevant. And I think as students start to see that, they really, uh, they can really appreciate that uh, a lot more. At least that's been my experience. I guess I could share a little bit about what I have been doing then as well, too. Um, a lot of, a lot of similarity with what you're doing, which is great. So what I'm experimenting with right now is creating basically an online image library or an online exhibit with students. And I'm using the platform Omika, I believe is the way oh, it's pronounced. Yeah, oh, Omika, right. It took me a while to find something like this. Like, like you mentioned with uh, the voice thread, it's something that you kind of have to know to know about. <laughs> um, yeah. it, took, it took me a while to come across Omika, but eventually I found this and it, it satisfies a lot of the things that I was trying to do. Basically, with having a new way of, of uh, having students engage with images online and basically being able to reorganize information via the process of tagging, something that 
uh, is very common in social media, something that I'm sure all of our students do better than all of us um, and all of the museum professionals in the world. But what I really wanted students to be able to do was to look at an image and break it down into its components, break it down into its parts um, by having these tags, these like uh, visual qualities, visual characteristics, so they could create a tag for, you know, one point perspective, uh, primary colors, if that's sort of the general palette that, that's being used, uh, different uh, elements of iconography, different characters, and then to be able to put all this into a big database and then to be able to reorganize this information bit by filtering through these tags. And basically, I wanted to be able to create some interesting comparisons. An undercurrent of my, my classes is always um, stressing um, like universal types of images, things that are similar from culture to culture. And I really wanted to be able to create these interesting types of comparisons that might otherwise be overlooked. But whenever I came across this Omega, Omica site, I saw that you could do kind of a lot more with this. So basically what I'm doing here is I'm having the students sort of translate in a way the typical art historical sort of survey um, set of works of art into an online exhibit where they are creating the content themselves. Wow. So much like what you're doing, Martha, it's, it's sort of flipping it onto the students and, and it's their responsibility to sort of create the content for these images, do, do the research behind it, create the entries for these um, works of art. So that's basically, in a nutshell, what, what my goal is here. And um, I'm so, trying to sort of, oh, uh, uh, go ahead. I, I beg your pardon. I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry. But that, that's really wonderful because, in a sense, you're doing, you're doing the same kind of thing, which is they're learning how to curate, essentially. Yeah, yeah, we're kind of all like a little team of, of uh, museum curators. Yeah. <laughs> the question, though, I, I have is you say they're translating the sort of traditional group of survey images. Are they coming up with new ones of their own? Or, um, are, they, or are they taking like, I mean, do you, is this based on, say, I don't know, based on objects that are traditionally taught in textbooks or... Where yeah, it's 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 traditional things that one expects from from a survey. Basically, I go in ahead of time and I put together the the images that I want the students to be working on in a collection. So, for example, like the Egypt collection, right. we'll have you know six or seven or eight works of art, typical things that we would expect from the art historical, historical canon, like the Narmer palette, the pyramids of Giza, the uh, statue of Menkaure, all those sorts of, of things that one would expect. And then what we would do then is break up into groups. Each group would have one of these works of art to focus on. And then I provide each group with a few sources and I provide them with a few tasks or questions for them to, to answer in the course of creating their entry and doing their research. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's great. Great. And, you know, I'm also stressing uh, skills like visual analysis, um, something that, is easily translated into sort of just daily life. Um, that's another major thread of, of my, my course. We spend a lot of time learning about the visual elements of art. What is art? You know, various definitions. Visual elements, uh, principles of design, these, the, these things. And then we're practicing those throughout the entire course. And I'm always stressing that this is something that everyone is always engaged with. We're, we live in a very, very visual world. And, and I want my students to be able to sort of, you know, 
slow down and think about what it is that they're seeing. So I'm always stressing this visual analysis. I'm always stressing their own unique interpretations of things. And all of these are being woven into the entries that they're making for these, these works of art. And as well as research too. There's definitely a skill of research that, that's being uh, honed in, in here. Web-based research with its challenges of, of finding uh, good and appropriate sources. But um, that's something that's, that's, a, that's very teachable and something that can be um, refined, like, like you were saying, with what you're doing as well. Oh, that's great. So, so does this mean, is this what they do throughout the entire class, throughout the entire course, or is it, or, or is the building of this database, is the building of the database the sort of material of the course, or is it just part of it? It's, it's part of it. Um, the first few weeks of class we spend um, learning these visual analysis skills, learning um, principles of design and visual elements and all of these things. Um, and after a few weeks, we will get into like the uh, art in context, basically. Spending time in class with this Omika website, building this exhibit, is a component, like maybe like maybe half of what we might do in a single in a single uh, class time. I, I've done things like this before, never with the Omika site, but with similar things of collaborating on an online space using like Google Slides. And I learned that. Uh, it never takes as much time as you think <laughs> yeah. to sort of uh, get all of these things together and have, have the students do this. They sort of, sort of jump right into it and, and are pretty efficient about it. I have uh, other things that we would be doing in class too. I guess I should say that each class I would sort of preface with a short introductory type of lecture, um, setting the stage. So jumping back to like ancient Egypt, for example, I would have like a 10 minute lesson where I would sort of t uh, take the lead and give everybody a nice sort of grounding in the historical background, um, any sort of prevalent and relevant themes that I want them to be thinking about. Basically, just sort of like like getting their toes wet into in what Egypt is as a as a concept, as a whole, as a time period. Okay. And then they would sort of take that and go off into their smaller groups. Everybody would sort of work in their smaller groups, putting all of these things together onto the website, and then they would share their information too um, in short presentations. Um, so everybody's aware of what everyone else is doing. But all of this is also preserved, of course, on the website, so people can uh, return to this as well, too. And then, ideally, if time permits, we would be able to um, you know, break some of these images down with these tags and do some, some comparison analyses. So that's kind of like a typical uh, class, like, like a typical lesson, how that would work. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's great. I, I definitely stress that you know these things that we're doing it's not at all busy work i'm afraid sometimes that ha doing things in groups can kind of have this feeling of of like busy work so i really like being able to use um some sort of web-based platform that you know it, it has a greater sort of gravitas to it um it's more sort of serious we all need to be sort of taking what we're doing here a little more serious as we're building this content together and this is sort of like the document of, of, of the class. So it's very important work. And I think that that's kind of important too. I've done some, I've done some things in the past in groups where it was kind of like just filling out a worksheet and nobody really took it very seriously. But I think just by the simple virtue of using um, a pretty powerful type of online platform, students sort of engage with it in a, in a more serious way and at a higher level. 
And that's another sort of element of value, I think, with a lot of these web-based tools is the sort of, um, you know, you kind of have this more, more um, gravitas sort of feel to it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'm interested in your ability to get Omeka to work for you and your students because I've used it too. And students have had for students to do um, individual research projects where they sort of create their own online exhibits. Right. Um, um, I haven't used it yet in groups, but I've had trouble with it. Just uh, it, it's a wonderful tool, but they had to get a lot of instruction in it. And then they had to remember things like using the public settings and so on. And, you know, they liked the idea of it. They were, uh, and some of them were quite, were quite happy playing with it, but others had a lot of trouble making sure their settings were right so that, you know, I could actually see what they'd done and that kind of thing. So I'm wondering how much, how much trouble you had just with getting them to learn it, not because of any problems that they have, but just because Omeka by itself can be a little tricky and like translating the Dublin core and all this, this is very nerdy stuff here. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's the kind of thing I think people kind of really want to know and wish people would talk about. So (laughs) Uh, I'm just wondering how, um, how that was for you, the process Um, of teaching them Omeka. Well, I haven't rolled out the Omeka thing yet. I've been doing, all of these things with a different platform. Uh, I plan on doing the Omeka site for the first time in the fall. But so far in the way I've been setting it up is that I've been able to sort of pare down the Dublin core, which for those who, who don't know, this is sort of the massive metadata set that Omeka uses. I believe there's like 15 different uh, data entry points within this simple um, Dublin core thing. But in the settings, I've been able to pare that down to only have the things that I want, like the artist title, date, and then a description, and then a source. Right. Yeah. Um, did that so had to create. We had to create our own translation of Dublin Core. Yeah. So that's been pared down already. And, and with making things public and private, that will probably just come with with my role as sort of like the webmaster, I guess, of this. I, I do foresee um, myself sort of going in there and sort of maintaining everything, making sure that everything is kind of working properly, making sure that things are, aren't set to private and things that are, that everything is, is on a public view. But yeah, th- that definitely is something that is, is a drawback, I think for the Omeka um, website builder is that it is a really powerful tool and there definitely is, is some learning that has to go along with it. But I've been sort of working on a set of instructions and sort of making everything as simple as possible. All of the entry points for, for data that I want them to be working with, I already have things in there. So for example, I want them to be working on the description of, of each individual work of art. So in that descriptions uh, area right now, I already have basically their instructions. So they can go in there and see their instructions. They can sort of you know know that that's something that they need to be focusing on that's someplace where they need to enter in some sort of data. But I think a lot of it's just going to be making sure that uh, they're not sort of going too far abroad um, with, with the back end of this. Cause yeah, it definitely could get confusing, but I think that would be some, something that I'm just sort of having to uh, keep up with as I'm going along with them. Um, and like I said, sort of act as a webmaster, making sure that everything is where it needs to be and that everything is set the way it should be. So that's something that I think is just going to fall on on me and maybe perhaps other instructors too who use this. Yeah, but. 
Uh, it's it's a good thing though because it occurs to me as we're as we're discussing this problem of how to teach them, you know, the software that one of the skills that they can learn from this is how not to be intimidated by software they don't know. Because that really I, I agree, is an yeah. important skill. And I know that some of my students get very easily rattled, you know, because they don't they don't really have they don't really have a lot of digital skills. They know how to use social media, but they don't know what to do when confronted with something they haven't seen before. And some of them get resourceful and try to figure it out, but sometimes with Omeka that can be hard to do. And so I think one useful thing perhaps to come out of it is to teach them that uh, not to be intimidated and not to be thrown off, but to how to ask for help. Or, yeah, I, I completely you know, agree. Yeah. They don't know that they can ask for help. And I think reducing that passivity in all ways uh, is a good thing. You know, and to teach them that it's okay that they don't know how to do something, but what's, uh, but now what it's their responsibility to learn it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Without fear. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the Omega thing is like, I don't mind that it's that um, sort of expansive and can sort of grow to be that complicated because again, this comes back to skills. Like you were saying, this is something that in most fields, they're going to be engaging with something that they are not not totally sure of some sort of data entry program or platform or something like that in various fields and yeah this is a, another sort of learnable skill that they can um, come away with on how to use something like this and how to you know ask for help how to use new new technologies um, or how to even learn about using new technologies so i don't really mind that it's it's has the potential of being complicated because it's 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 a teachable moment then too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've had my students say, "I didn't take this class to learn the software," and I said, "Well, you know, but the software is sort of is sort of part of the deal, you know." But that's uh, uh, that's really wonderful. I think that's a really great way to do it. How big are your classes? Um, usually around thirty students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like mine. Yeah. yeah. Well, that could be really uh, challenging if you're in like a you know 200 student lecture hall. I don't know how that would work. Which, like I mentioned earlier, some of these these platforms, some of these tools definitely vary in their application based on class size. They do. Um, yeah. yeah. Is there anything that you've been using that you think would translate better to a larger class? That's a good question. Well, I suppose one thing that I do is just another sort of classroom exercise well i think that in a class in a class of 200 then putting them in groups is essential or at least putting them in you know groups of two or three but i don't know whether i would do this as a graded assignment but more like an activity would be would be not just this business with voice thread which can actually accommodate a very large number of people I guess if you get the you know paid version or, or something, but also uh, to teach them how to find objects uh, simply through searches. One of the things that I'm doing is uh, is is teaching them to look beyond the kind of established uh, canon. You know, like if you say, okay, well, if you're going to look at Egypt, you're going to look at the Palette of Nomer, and you're going to look at the Pyramids of Giza, and you'll look at you know th- things like that. 
but also to look at other objects which fit into that general category, but which they might not have seen. So, because one question that, you know, when, 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 when I talk to my students about these are the questions that we ask about works of art. One of, you know, they all come up with questions like, you know, who made it and what is it made of and, you know, how much was this person paid and you know, what's going on in the image. You know, these are important questions. I mean, how much is a person paid is a hugely important question. And we get to that. But no one ever asks, is there another one just like this? And one of the things I try to do is to encourage them to see all kinds of versions of this object. So for example, I'll say, okay, do a search. And sometimes we do a, a database search using museum databases like, like the Met or um, uh, the Louvre has a really good one. For example, uh, if I wanna get out of you know, Google searches, but just say, okay, you know, go look up you know, Egypt and look up this certain range of dates. And I said, you're gonna come up with about 150 objects and none of them are the famous things that are, you know, usually first and foremost, they're just any old thing. How would you take this thing that you've never seen before and put that into the context as well? And so one of the things that I, uh, I do is to have them do these searches and to come up with these things that are not necessarily common or to look at 50 different examples of, you know, an 18th century landscape painting in Europe and then to be able to come to some conclusions about, oh, so what, what were the conditions for 18th century landscape painting in Europe? Not by looking at, say, two, but by looking at 50 of them and saying, oh, look, you know, they're all doing it in very much the same way. So that's one thing I do is to have them look for patterns. And this is something that can be done, I think, with a large number of students at once because you can put them in pairs have them look for various different things to divide it up, I suppose, among the groups, and then either post something or just raise their hands or say, okay, we looked at this or whatever. But it, it's a way of having them look for patterns since so much of art is produced according to these conventions. I mean, it's something that we're so familiar with. I think we don't even think about it that, you know, that, that, you know, you can't represent all of 18th century landscape painting by looking at one Watteau, for example, because you won't right. realize how much he's doing what everybody else is doing and what is he doing that's somewhat different, you know. So I think that can also be of value. So I think what I've done is to answer the question in two totally different ways. <laughs> one is about the, the number of uh, students that could do an activity, but also about this sort of more multiple approach to looking at art in general so that they can get a sense of, you know, what, like in your example, what is Egypt by looking at, say, uh, half a dozen or a dozen objects and then extrapolate that and say, okay, now look at this other thing you've never seen before. I have students go to auction websites so that they can see the latest things that have hit the art market which is also a way to explain to them that the history of art is dynamic and it's ever changing and yeah. new yeah. things come up all the time and reattributions have to happen and adjustments to all kinds of elements of our understanding have to happen. And then I'll have them find these things that maybe by unknown artists or totally obscure artists, you know, and then they have to sort of fit those into the pattern as well. 
Martha and Tyler, thank you for participating in CAA Conversations. Well, thank you very much. I really yes, thank you.